Well, this morning we come again to Acts chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 16. The title of this morning's message is Paul's Defense. Now, soon we will see, actually, the tables turn and Felix will literally be standing before Paul as Paul will carry the gospel to Felix, who is very familiar with the way, and we're going to hear that terminology. That's the language that Christians gave themselves in that time in terms of identifying themselves, followers of the way. And we'll hear that in our text this morning. But Felix was very familiar with the way, being there in Caesarea. There were many Christians in that area. And we're going to see him stand before Paul, who is a follower of the way, and hear the gospel. But leading up to that, Paul will give his defense, and we're going to take a look at that defense, which really sets the foundation for a climactic encounter with Felix. So pay close attention, knowing that that's really going to be the climax. Actually, Felix will stand before Paul in every, attempt, in every purpose of the word. But leading up is Paul's defense. Now, we've heard from the high priest and some elders that have brought a very slick, uh, slick, polished um, attorney with them to give the accusation towards Paul. That was Tertullus. And so we've heard from Tertullus, and today we'll hear from Paul in his own defense. So if you will, let's read through it together and begin in verse 10 and read down through verse 16. Paul's defense for Felix. Verse 10, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the facts that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they provide to you the charges for which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my, do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Well, now we see Paul give his defense before Felix. Now remember, Felix is a procurator there of Judea, in the province of Judea. He served in this role from A.D. 52 to A.D. 54, or excuse me, A.D. 57. Um, but he's been around Judea. Along, he, kind of had, he kind of spent a couple years as an understudy. So he's been around Judea for a long time. He's very familiar, again, with the way. But this guy's reign, particularly as his most uh, his reign as governor, his most authority, where he has most influence on the area, is one of terror. Really, a historian, uh, Tacitus, noted this concerning Felix: he wielded his kingly authority with the spirit of a slave 
and all cruelty and lust. Alexander McLaren goes on to sum it up this way in terms of his leadership with this remark. His court reeked with the blood, excuse me, his court reeked with blood and debauchery. So this was an evil guy who ruled with an iron fist and he seemed to um, enjoy the brutality. He was, in every sense of the word, bloodthirsty. And Paul's now on trial before this guy. And he'll serve as judge over this case. He'll hear the plaintiffs, and then he'll hear the defense, and he will give the final verdict. Also, we can look ahead a little bit and see that his final verdict is really put off. He'll just delay that. But that's what the, that's what the trial's intended to look like. So now he's judge of this court, and we're going to see uh, uh, the plaintiffs, we're going to see the defense, and we should see the verdict. That's the normal course of the trial, but that is not going to take place. He'll put this off. But it's his responsibility, and now we'll see, Paul, we'll see Paul give his defense before him. So the high priest and some elders have come down to Caesarea, and they've come with Tertullius in tow. Tertullius has um, made his accusations. There are three of them. And basically, he's laid it on thick beforehand, right? He butters Felix up a little bit. Um, and Felix knew it was, uh, he knew what he was up to. Everybody knew what he was up to. But did it have an effect? Well, yes. Flattery works. Flattery always works. That's part of a fallen world. Um, as we lead it up to that, I'll ask you this question. Is flattery okay for Christians? I mean, while we're, while we're here. Because that's, that's, that's a very poignant way in which uh, was, was brought out, the text brings this out, that uh, Tertullius went about it this way. And we're going to see Paul do something quite, in, in, in quite contrast here in his defense. Is flattery okay? Now, let's let me distinguish. There's a difference between complimenting someone and flattering them. So let me give a definition for you. Flattery uh, would be one seeking a selfish desire and trying to get that by way of using flattery. So it's, it's wrong. It's wrong for us. and something that uh, we see brought out here in the text and we should be mindful of. It's not okay for Christians. Any exaggeration of the truth is not okay. And this sense of flattery is always an exaggeration of the truth for the purpose of getting some selfish gain. You're trying to get something out of it. And that's what, exactly what uh, Tertullius was trying to do. So I'll bring uh, 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 just to your attention before we continue on. Proverbs 26, 28 says this, A lying tongue hates those it crushes. And a flattering mouth works ruin. So flattery is something we must be careful with. It's not okay for us. Our hearts to be set on our conforming to the image of Christ. And uh, some things that can seem small in our culture and insignificant is just part of the way it goes because it works. It's things that we have to be mindful of. So Tertullius used this measure and it was, of course, quite successful. But Paul will not do that. What are the charges, though? What does Tertullius say about Paul? Well, the charges are these. Sedition against Rome, sectarianism, and ultimately, sacrilege of the temple. So he gives three charges. He lays them out there succinctly. And he says, basically, that Paul was a threat to Rome. Now, really, Paul's a threat to the leaders of Israel. Paul is 
is seeing many people come to Christ there in Jerusalem. He's played a part in that. Certainly he's not been point man. He's been, uh, God has called him off to the Gentiles. But he was part of the spark. And they've seen uh, many come to Christ there in Jerusalem. And so there is much testimony of Christ there. And the religious leaders feel that pressure. They feel their grip on power being threatened. And that's what's at issue with Paul. Here's this, this guy that is, is a, a part of the way. And now here he shows back up in Jerusalem. And we need to get rid of this guy because this way is threatening our power structure. So he's a threat to them. He's done nothing to threaten Rome. And he's done nothing illegal in terms of Roman law. And they also accuse him of being... Uh, uh, so, so he's this pest. He's this plague that's ultimately trying to stir up the Jews and push them towards revolt against Rome. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's a false accusation. They also say that he's the ringleader. There's that negative connotation. He's this ringleader of this sect called the sect of the, of the Nazarenes, right? So the name of Christ is not mentioned. The Christ whom they crucified is not mentioned. But it's just called the sect of the Nazarenes. And a very, it's a very uh, negative term. So the, it would be used, it was used against Christ, right? It was used to mock him. He's the Nazarene. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. But actually we're talking about the promised Messiah, the Son of God, who has come down, taken on flesh, and lived a perfect life, and now ascended to the cross to pay for the sin debt of all who repent and believe on Him. We're talking about God, a very God, who has come down that we might be made right with Him. We're talking about the the greatest point, the apex of all of God's linear creation, that of Christ coming into the world, ultimately to pay atonement on the cross. But God has come down. And God has come down and taken on flesh there as a Nazarene. And it's just a reminder to us that God works in the smallest little parts of life, the most insignificant people and areas and regions of the world. All the things that have little glamour in this world's view are the very things, the very people that God is pleased to use. So now this mock despised Nazarene is in actuality the God-man, Jesus Christ, whom they fail to mention the one whom they crucified. And finally, they just add a little on. Oh, by the way, he desecrated the temple. And the accusation was that he brought a Gentile into the temple, which was not true. Now, again, Gentiles have right into the Gentile court. And if Gentiles go beyond that, it's punishable by death through Roman law. That would have nothing to do with Paul, even if he were to invite someone in. So, the accusations are false, but nonetheless, that's, Tertullius, uh, uh, that's what Tertullius rolls out here. And so the threat is indeed to the Jewish leaders, and they want Paul to be found guilty, really, of this sedition, really of seeming as a threat to Rome. Rome cares nothing about the theological squabbles. Their concern is an upright, a revolt, any kind of trouble. That's what Rome wants to put to rest quickly. And that's what they're trying to present here. 
is that Paul is a troublemaker. He's going to be trouble for you. He's going to try to stir up uh, a revolts within the Jewish community towards Rome. And you need to get rid of them. And a revolt, a guy that's going to really revolt like that is a guy that needs to be punished by death. You need to kill him. So they're trying to get Rome to do their bidding. They want Paul dead. And so the charges were really bogus in every way. But nonetheless, Paul stands before them and gives his defense. Now we talked about how he stood in, in, relate, in relation to these false charges. He simply gives his defense, and he stands there blameless, and that's very important for us. There are going to be all kinds of false charges that come your way in your life, most likely before God calls you home. As you're here as a Christian, you are going to have false charges uh, uh, filed against you in some degree, in some element of life, just because you're a Christian. And no other reason, simply because of your being a follower of Christ. So see Paul's blameless behavior here. Be encouraged and continue to pray that the same would be true for us, that we would live blameless before men as best we can before God and God's strength, that that would be a prayer, a very in-front, up-front prayer for us, prayer for us uh, uh, continually, individually, but as a body of Christ together, that part of our understanding of who we are is this passionate desire to honor Christ with our blameless lives, lived out in a world that will falsely accuse us. So it's just something we need to be praying about because it's part of the Christian experience, if you will. And here we see a great example in Paul. He's blameless here. And so he can give his defense and he can give it knowing that he has lived out blamelessly in light of these threats or, or, or these charges. So, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's coming. And with persecution comes false accusations. Our responsibility is to be blameless, right? Uh, you, you know, you remember uh, Eric Little? You remember the famous Olympian there that was a missionary from Scotland that was a missionary to China? Where Eric Little used to famously say concerning uh, when, he would be, when he would engage in, in, a, in an event, in a race, he would say, the first half of the race, I give it all that I possibly can, and I leave the, and I leave the second half of the race to God. And so the same, the same can be true for us. And we think of uh, our blameless lives before the circumstances that rolls out before us or accusations that come our way. We are to be blameless. And then the results we leave to God. Our responsibility is to strive to live blamelessly, knowing that the persecution will certainly come. So pray to be like Paul. Let Paul uh, saturate your souls with the reality of his blamelessness here and pray to do likewise. Pray to be like Paul. No matter the trials, whatever we may face, we would stand before them blameless. What a testimony. Just that reality. Lots of cool, fun stuff happens here, but just that alone should excite us to no end. Paul's blameless. Wow. What a testimony. So let me encourage you this way. Be willing. Pray. My goodness, you know, I'm the first one at the front line to say, look, um, I, I'm, I would fold up like a wet needle. There's nothing in me that's rugged and tough and able to just stand up to this stuff. 
I, I read a little, uh, uh, I, I, a movie was made about him. I'm sorry, I, I can't give you a good example. It just, it just left me. But uh, a famous track athlete from USC, I think it was um, Unbreakable, might have been the movie. I've totally lost the guy's name. But a famous track athlete back in the 40s from USC uh, went to serve uh, in the war, and he was captured by the, by the Japanese. They found out that he was a famous track athlete, and they wanted to use it for propaganda, so he was tortured relentlessly. And the guy um, just would not give in. He just would not be broken. And uh, that's not in me. I don't have that. Um, later, not to belabor this, but, but later he came back to the States, of course, had lots of trauma after the war and, and just couldn't get over the anger. Uh, with this one particular um, Japanese commander that was, uh, very, took a very personal intent in breaking him. And uh, his hatred towards this man just overwhelmed him. Uh, he, he just lived with fits and bouts of anger and, and, uh, and angst and, um, you know, the nightmares and all, all that. And he, he went into a, a Billy Graham event and um, uh, repented and believed on Christ. And Christ uh, saved him and changed his life, certainly changed his outlook. And uh, we know the, the, uh, we don't forget about things, but our hearts are changed of what God has done in our lives. And so the man was able to forgive uh, his captors, and it's a wonderful story. But that's the reality of, of, you know, I was just thinking about that prior, just a man's will to stand up in the face of these things. Uh, that, you know, I have no capacity to do that. Uh, some men do to some degree, but that's not what I'm saying to you is we need to pray for God to give us to endure through any kind of persecution that might come our way for following Christ. And at the same time, it's right for us to challenge false allegations. Now, those things usually blend together, but we need to keep them separate. Be willing. Ask God to give you strength to stand up in or any persecution that might come your way for following Christ. But at the same time, if you see false accusations, it is right to challenge them. And a blameless life is a good place to start with the challenge. And that's what Paul's able to do here. And he will challenge him, and he's good and right for him to do so, and we should uh, be mindful of that as well. So when we're put on trial before the world, may we display the glory of God in our blamelessness. What a testimony by Paul here. But let me first uh, uh, bring you to his blameless actions. So let's look at that in verses 10 through 13. His blameless actions. Now, let me go back uh, and bring you back to verse 4. And let's just read through the accusations again so you can get a feel for Tertullius' language here. Verse 4. He butters up Felix a little bit there. And then in verse 5 he says uh, concerning Paul, For we have found this man to be a real pest, a real plague, if you will, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews. Now there's the sedition. He does this throughout all the world, and he's also a ringleader uh, of the sect called the Nazarenes. So he's a ringleader of this sect. And then he goes on in verse 6, And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And we arrested him. Now they have to say that he tried to desiccate the temple because they're not there as eyewitnesses. They don't know. It's just accusations. And it was accusations made by other Jewish leaders that came from Asia, most likely Ephesus, and made these accusations. They have no eyewitnesses. If anybody were to be here in front of Felix uh, uh, making these accusations, who should it have been? The Sanhedrin, did they see any of this? They just have to say, well, we were told. Somebody said that he tried to desecrate the temple. Why? Because they were not there. They're not eyewitnesses. 
Who should be here? If anybody were to make accusations against Paul, who should it be? It should be the Jewish leaders from Asia, right? They're the ones that made the accusation. They should be here, but they're not. So, so they just uh, uh, the high priest has to um, send Tertullius in here to just say, well, he tried to desecrate the temple. And then, and then he says, and we arrested him. Now, is that what happened? No, they didn't arrest him. They attacked him. And the Romans had to arrest him to save his life. So it's bogus on his face, but nonetheless, Paul will give a defense here. So Paul comes in and he calmly gives his defense. He gives it calmly, he gives it convincingly, and he gives it categorically. He just, he just lists them off, one after another, uh, and takes them down. So look with me there in verse 10. So the governor nods for him to speak, and Paul responds, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So here's his first point. And by the way, he's not buttering Felix up. He's just stating facts. Look, he's saying, he's saying in, in, in other words, Felix, you've been here long enough to know what happens in the region of Judea. You've dealt with the Jewish folks long enough. You know that this is really a theological matter a theological disagreement between Jews. It has nothing to do with breaking Roman law, and you know that, so I'm happy. And then he begins by giving them a timeline. And so it just lays down some practical logic on them here. Look, I've been here five days, right? He was imprisoned in, in Jerusalem for one day. So if he's only been in the area for 12 days... He doesn't have much time to stir up a riot or a revolt. Now, part of these days that he was in Jerusalem, which really only leaves us six. Now, I'll say this up front not to really bog us down in this, but uh, some, uh, the original text could give a leaning to this, uh, uh, his, him saying that he was in Jerusalem for 12 days. And this would be an extra five that we count him here. In, uh, uh, and then there's travel time, too, down to Caesarea. So that's, uh, there's... A, there's some ambiguity there, but in either case, if he had a total of 12 days in Jerusalem, that's very little time. If he had six, that's less. And again, part of that, one day he's arrested, and part of that he's in the temple, right? Because he's, he's, he's going in and participating in a Jewish ceremony. And so he's, he's participating and lending himself to some, some men... Uh, and, and paying their dowry, if you will, uh, for going in to uh, take the Nazarite vow. And so he's doing this to uh, try to encourage the Jewish uh, followers of Christ there in Jerusalem of, of who he is and his sincerity <laughs> and his still holding to his Jewishness. And, you can, and that makes it a contention. I'm just as Jewish as you are. And so that's what he's doing. And he's in there and he's taking a ceremony. He's being in the temple. So there's no time for him to be there stirring up a riot. Now, who stirred up the mob? Was it Paul? No, absolutely not. It was not Paul. Paul had nothing to do with that. It was the religious leaders from Asia. They stirred the riot. So Paul's not there doing anything to stir up a riot. He was caught up in it, actually brought about by the religious leaders. Now, 
Paul has no slick lawyer to defend him. He says, you know, first let me just give you a timeline. (laughs) I was there a very short period of time. And that's hard to stir up this great revolt and riot in that period of time. And he's speaking for himself, and he can. Why? Paul doesn't have one, someone speaking instead, instead, but what does he have? Well, he has his blameless life. He has the truth, and, what, and more so he has the indwelling Spirit of God. God Almighty, and the Spirit indwells him to stand up and defend himself. And the same is true for you. When you're here as a follower of Christ, whatever accusations might come your way, whatever situations of life might come your way, when you face them, you don't face them alone. You face them with the indwelling Spirit as your advocate and Christ as your Lord. You don't face them alone. The Spirit of God dwells within you and the Spirit will give you what you need to stand up and defend yourself as a follower of Christ. He has infinite wisdom and power and he, in all your situations and all your circumstances of life. So Paul is not facing this alone. The Holy Spirit will lead him along as he gives his defense. So he's happy to give an answer and he gives him a little timeline here and just lays that out for starters. And Paul continues. He says in verse 12, Neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot? So again, what was he doing? He was in there practicing or participating in a ceremonial rite that belonged to Israel. And he was, he was uh, um, trying to, again, identify himself and ingratiate himself to the leaders there, of, uh, of the leading Christians there in, 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 in Jerusalem. And again, there had been, been question about him. So he's busy trying to do this, again, to bring uh, with his Gentile brothers that have come with him to bring this offering to the uh, Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem and to, again, try to unite the two, unite these factions of the, of the um, Christian body together where there has been uh, worldly, in a worldly sense, great barriers between them. But now they have this commonality in Christ. And Paul is trying to, to um, emphasize that and nurture that and build this bond. That's what he's busy doing. And so he's there in the temple. He's not there like you might find him in the Gentile world. There's much Christian witness in Jerusalem now, right? There's many Christians there. The way is prominent there. It is a threat to the Jewish leadership. I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, the Spirit of God has moved greatly there. So it's not like the Gentile world where Paul was point man and he goes out and he's engaging these Gentiles who have never had any association with the gospel whatsoever. And he'll come to the square, he'll come to the town square, and he'll begin to engage. That's not what he's done here, and it's not necessary, and it's not what his main mission was here. So you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even start talking to anybody. Which is true. And no one can blame him of that. He didn't even carry on a discussion anywhere. Not in the synagogue, not in the square, nowhere. Certainly not in the temple. And then he goes on in verse 13. He says, Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Now what about that? They can't prove it because they have no evidence. And by the way, I just came across something very Uh, interesting and somewhat scary 
Now, you know, obviously, now you're going to laugh, but you know, so I'm not a technology guy. Okay, I know. Um, but I heard that there's now, I believe you can get it on your phone. So if you, there's a way to take pictures, and if your pictures are a little messed up or somebody kind of is in the way, you can just phase them out. Now, I'm sure there's, te- you know, there's technological Magic words. Eraser. Magic eraser. All right. Um, that is frightening. That is frightening. I mean, in a court of law, we better have eyewitnesses or everything gets thrown out. Videos is no longer okay. We need eyewitnesses. That is frightening, y'all. We need eyewitnesses. We need to demand eyewitnesses in, in a court of law today. You better, I'm serious about that. You better keep that in the forefront of your mind. That kind of stuff is scary. Now, I digress. But that's what Paul says. They don't have witnesses. They can't back this up. There's no witnesses to substantiate this. And there it's done. The case is done right there. And this is, so Paul's giving a beautiful fence here. He lays out a really, a really cool timeline just to let them know. And then he, he speaks to these allegations. And, he, and then he says there's no witness. You don't have one witness to substantiate these, uh, these claims. And that's exactly true. Why? The mob fell upon him, right? Rome arrested him in order to keep, him, keep the mob from killing him. They have no witnesses there of what, of what he did. is because he was blameless. So there's nothing to be said that Paul's actions were blameless. And as a result of that, they have no witnesses. They have to trump up charges. And that's how we want our lives to be. That's our prayer. To look, to look here at Paul and say, God, may it also be true of us. When the accusations come, and and let me just say, they will. Some of you have already experienced that to some degree in your Christian life. Uh, If you haven't, it's coming. Okay? So this is not a matter of if, but when. And when they do, before God and man, we desire that our lives are blameless so that we can say they have no witnesses. And the reason they have no witnesses is because... So that's the heart's desire for us as we look at Paul's blameless life. And now that brings us to Paul's bold assertion. Look there in verses 14 and 16. Let me draw your attention to verse 14 primarily here first. Paul says, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written, written in the prophets. And let me hold right there for a moment. So Paul says, well, Felix, there is one thing that I'll admit to. There's one thing that I am, if you will, guilty of. I am a follower of the way. Now, they call it a sect, and he's going to, he's going to flip this on his head. Paul, Paul works this beautifully here. They call it a sect. Now, they call it a sect of Judaism. They say it's it's an abuse of Judaism. It's, it's a, a, a sect, a wrong approach, an offspin, a, 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 heresy, a heresy of Judaism. But under Roman law, none of that means a thing. All that Roman law is worried about, is it a sect from Judaism? We're not, we don't worry about if you call it heresy or what. Is it attached to Judaism? Because there's freedom of religion under Roman law. And Judaism is applied within that reality. 
in any part that's a break-off or a spin-off of Judaism, as long as it's not threatening revolt against Rome, there's a level of religious freedom. So actually, the accused sect still falls in terms of Roman law under Judaism, and it's legal for Paul to worship that way. It's not against Roman law. So Paul's still innocent. But now he's going to flip it on its, uh, on its head and say, actually, what they call a sect is really, in the truest sense, Judaism. He's saying, I am a genuine follower of Judaism that's seen it to its consummate end in Christ, and they are the sect. They, are, they have misled and miscued the reality of Judaism for their own material gain. So he's saying, I'm not the sect, they're the sect. And listen again to how he does it here. He says, yes, I'm guilty of, of following the way, this, what they call a sect. And he says, I do serve the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I serve that God, the God of Israel, the God of Judaism. I serve. And here Paul makes a distinction particularly between himself and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, what do they believe about the Old Testament in terms of uh, uh, the books of the Old Testament? What do they believe? Right? Not in the resurrection. What about all the Old Testament? Just five first five books, right? So he's going to mark them off right here. Now, his uh, uh, brethren, that would be Pharisees. They would believe it all. But he's saying they've missed it. He said, I am in, the, in the, if, if you will, the language has been such, probably now it would be called, you know, I, I would be a, 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 you know, a horrible, mean, judgmental person and, and awful for, for saying the language, but a, a completed Jew. Now, um, I'm, I'm sure that would be called anti-Semitism now, but it's a pretty accurate view of what Paul is calling himself here. I've seen this thing through to its consummate truth. They've broken it off into a sect. It's not me, it's them. I believe everything the Old Testament says. And here's where Paul has all the good ground. Because if you believe everything that the Old Testament says, if you believe the Old Testament, historical, grammatical understanding of the text. Now even today, we would see very Orthodox Jews just take the very letters of the text. Out of, its, out of the context, out of its historical context, out of its grammatical context, just the letters, and so dig down on them that they miss the actual message of the sentence and the paragraph as it fits in time. But if you read it through in its historical context, and you read it through grammatically, as we would understand any other text, you must be a follower of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament points to Christ as the fulfillment of everything that is laid out there historically, uh, linearly, in space and time, and type and shadow as pointing to the Messiah. If you believe the Old Testament, you must believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. All of the Old Testament points to that reality. That's Why do we study? Why do we take so much time in our morning Bible studies to study through the Old Testament because we long to see and worship God 
as He reveals Himself in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, through type and shadow, all the way through all the interweaving realities of the Old Testament. That's why we do it, because it all points to Christ. And that's exactly what Paul was saying here. I believe it. I believe the Old Testament. All the law, all the prophets. And the hope there, the hope that is found in the Old Testament, what is that? That there will be a resurrection, right? There will be a resurrection. Listen to his language here. Having a hope in verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So there will be a resurrection, resurrection unto judgment, all those who are outside of Christ. The ultimate, the, the consummate fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the promised Messiah. And all those who are in Christ. Those who are hidden in the redemption of Christ, found in His blood atonement alone. And the Old Testament, in literal language, also in type and shadow, point to a resurrection, a final resurrection of everyone. A resurrection unto righteous judgment and eternal death and condemnation, and a judgment unto righteousness, those hidden in Christ, and eternal life and hope in Christ alone. And so he's saying all of the Old Testament points to this reality, and this reality is finalized in Christ, the promised Messiah, whom these men have missed, whom these men have crucified. I believe the Bible. I believe the Old Testament. That's what he's saying to them In that moment, I believe the text. And if we believe the text, we must believe in the Messiah. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. I believe in the Messiah because, one, I believe in the Old Testament. So, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. That is true. And I believe in Scripture. All the law, all the prophets, everything they say points to Christ. So, he says, I do serve the God and Father of these men. Believe everything in accordance to the law that's written in the prophets. He says, I'm a consistent Jew. Or we might use the language, completed Jew. And they are sectarians. The way is a self-proclaimed name of Christians. And he's saying, this is the way. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say when he comes? I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul believes it all. And all of it points ultimately to Christ, the Messiah, the great hope of true Israel. The hope of true Israel is Jesus Christ alone. There will be a resurrection unto judgment and unto life. And the great hope of true Israel is a resurrection found in Christ alone. So Paul turns the tables here in a very real way and says that they're the real heretics and I'm a genuine Jew. I'm a consistent Jew. I'm a completed Jew. And actually, when we think about witnessing to uh, Jewish friends that we might have, again, there's not a large uh, contingency of a Jewish population in our area, but nonetheless, we don't know where God will take us. We don't know the opportunities we will have to, to witness to Jews, which have a, a unique uh, perspective in this world. And this is exactly what we must take, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And if one were to believe in the Old Testament at all, and certainly, sadly, most Jewish people do not, 
Um, nonetheless, Jesus is that promised Messiah. There is no other hope for uh, a Jewish person or a Gentile person in this world outside of Christ alone. Christ is the promised Messiah. That is our message. That is the great hope for true Israel. All true Israel are those who are in Christ. Jew, uh, uh, um, nationalistic Jew or Gentile. Ethnic Jew or ethnic Gentile. Whatever the case may be, salvation and hope and the fulfillment of the Old Testament is found in Christ alone. So that's our message. That's the great hope of true Israel. And these religious leaders are indeed the real heretics. If they believed the scripture, they would worship the Messiah. So the only true worship of God comes through the Messiah. That's it. There is no other true worship. And that's our message. That's what we must hold. There's no options here. There's one way to worship the one true God of Israel, the one true God of of the universe. There's one right way to worship and there's one access to the God of Israel. That's the Messiah. That's Christ alone. Now, if you could take a glance at verse 22, you see there that Felix did know about the way. There were many Christians all over Caesarea, right? He had heard about the way. I'm sure that, that they had witnessed to him. There's one in particular that's, I'm very, I always just imagine in my mind this one guy that maybe had already witnessed to Philip, I mean, excuse me, to, to, to Felix. I gave it away. Now, uh, who was it? Yeah, Philip. What, what, what was he called? He, I mean, he was prominent on the scene at first when, when the gospel broke out there in Jerusalem. He's very prominent. And then Paul becomes point man to the Gentiles, and Philip kind of disappears. And then later, uh, earlier in Acts, we see that he reappears. We finally see him again. He's just kind of, he was off the scene for a while. And then all of a sudden, he pops up uh, earlier in Acts. And where is he? But after. After. Where is he? Where do we, we find him last here in Acts? Where do we find him? Where did he locate with his daughters? We see him mentioned again where? In Caesarea, right? And what's he called then? What's he known as in Caesarea? Philip the Evangelist, Right? So I always wonder, man, did Philip get to Felix first? I'm sure a number of Christians there did at some point. If, he, if they had access to him, there was much Christian witness in Caesarea. And so he knew about the way. He had encountered these Christians before. He understood what Paul was saying. And he's saying that I'm a complete worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And... Felix, you know exactly what that means. These accusations are bogus. They have nothing to do with this dispute over which one is a real sect. Me or these religious leaders. But he goes on to say, by the way, it's them. I'm right, they're wrong. What makes Paul right? He has the Messiah, they reject the Messiah. It comes down to that. It always comes down to that reality. So Paul's not a Jew, not just a Jew outwardly, right? It's not just a, an outward formal circumcision for Paul. Where is Paul also circumcised? 
He's a, he's a Jew inwardly as well. His heart has been circumcised. That's his point. I'm a genuine Jew because I'm not just an outward Jew. It's not just an outward uh, 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 external religious practice. My heart has been circumcised. My heart has been circumcised by my Savior, the only one that can reach into the heart of sinful men and do a supernatural saving work. The Savior has circumcised my heart. I'm complete in Him. That is our hope, and that is our witness as well. He's complete. He's a Jew through and through, if you will. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now that's how serious it is. So it's not just a matter of, well, this sect has a little bit of a, of a twist on this particular doctrine. And that's why we think of you as being a, a really a sect over here because you've got to get a little bit of twist on this doctrine. And, and we're just, and we're just uh, um, fussing about a few, a few words and a few uh, uh, different definitions in terms of theological language. No, it's life and death before a righteous judge. It's life and death before a holy God. It's eternal life hidden in Christ or it's eternal condemnation rightly judged before a holy God. It's everything. It's all found in Christ or nothing. Anyone who does not love the Lord is to be accursed. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter your uh, uh, position in life. Doesn't matter your political affiliation. Doesn't matter uh, your world travels. Doesn't matter if you've been stuck on a hill somewhere in Western North Carolina. What matters is Christ and Christ alone. There is no excuse. There is no options. There is no other way. There is no exceptions. It's Christ or nothing. It's Christ or condemnation. It's life or death. So Paul here is not speaking out of arrogance. This is far more important than being judged rightly by Felix, this corrupt Roman governor. Paul's far beyond that, y'all, and we have to go with him. He's not speaking out of arrogance. Oh, well, the sectarian thing, I can knock that off easy, Felix. Oh, sedition, no way. He is blameless. And he can, he can knock them off. I didn't defile the temple. It's far more than that because he gets right to the reality of it. It's Christ. These men are sectarian because they missed Christ. I'm complete because of Christ. He's the one who has circumcised my heart. And there is no other hope of life outside of Him. So he's not speaking out of arrogance. He's pleading here. With all the compassion of his heart, he's speaking about his fellow Jews and ultimately about all of mankind. He has a deep love for his fellow Jews and he longs to see them know the Messiah along with the Gentile world of whom he's been witnessing for years. But listen to the language in Romans 9 and 3. Really Paul here because of this situation where he's, he's calling, the, he's calling uh, Felix to, to the reality here of that these Jewish leaders that have made false accusations against me are really the sect. In other words, they're... And it's easy to just tidy that up in some legal case and just, and just knock it out of the park there legally speaking. 
and say, Felix, there you go, buddy. You've been here long enough. You know how this works. Unless, you know, let's dismiss this thing. You make the verdict and let me on my way. His heart's far more engaged than that because it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to get a little cold towards those who mistreat us. And you can't go much further in mistreating someone than the way the religious leaders have mistreated Paul. Now, I want you to listen to the language of Romans 9, 1 through 3, as we think about Paul here on trial, as he's speaking about them being in a... Here's his heart. As he tells Felix the truth about the Messiah, and he speaks to these men the truth about the Messiah. After they tried to set him up, Here's his heart. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the form. Now there's the deeper application behind this very formal setting here for us. There's the heart. It's easy to look at Paul defend himself, and he's right because he's blameless. It's important for us as well. But then where's the Why is this in the text? There's not a lot of doctrine here. Why does the Holy Spirit leave all these trials? I'm not saying I have the, the full answer. I, I don't know. It's, it's always been a little perplexing to me. But look at Paul's heart as you see him roll these things out before the courts of men, ultimately before kings. And in the presence of those who have tried to set him up, that he might be convicted and killed. So they can go about their merry way and live their very powerful, influential influential lives. If you believe in the Old Testament, if you believe it's the inspired Word of God, you must believe in Christ. To deny Jesus as the Messiah is to deny the Old Testament. Again, that's why it's so important for us to study it. Paul's a follower of the way. He is faithful to the God of Israel. He trusts the Old Testament. John 5, 39. This is important for us as well. We too are followers of the way, if you will, just like Paul. John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. This is Christ speaking. It is these, speaking of the Scriptures, that testify about. So we take the Word of God and we take it and we carry it authoritatively into our culture and we say, thus says the Lord. Whether the culture recognizes it as authoritative or not is no consequence to you. Now you're not coming with a callous heart. But it is the Word of God. It has the words of life. It speaks of the truth of the Messiah. It is a means through which God wields His power to save. And so we take the Word of God and we declare it to be what it is and we go forth and say, thus says the Lord. In our context, even though we might be wrongly accused and falsely accused for doing so. And forbidden, or whatever the case may be, as our time here rolls out. Nothing changes for us. We're just like Paul in that regard. We take the Word of God and say, this is the truth for all mankind. This is the promised Messiah that Scripture speaks of. This is the truth that, holds, that bears uh, weight over you. 
no matter where you are or what position you were in. And he will bring that truth to Felix as well, as we'll see uh, as we continue on in this, in this text, Lord willing. But he says to follow Jesus is true Judaism. And then Paul gets to verse 16. And I want you to see how he kind of sums up this section here of his defense. In view of this, in view of all that he has said, he goes on and says, I also do my best to to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. So Paul says his heart's desire, and we see him live it out, His heart's desire is this, to live consistently with what he believes. Now you believe the truth of all of life. That puts you in a glorious place. A dangerous place? Yes. A place wrought with danger? Yes. A place that's ripe for being falsely accused? Yes. A place that's ripe for being abused and mistreated? Yes, but a glorious place that's binding to all mankind, all of creation is settled under. Don't hold it arrogant and don't sit on it. Carry it and trust the Lord and pray that Paul, that you might too be like Paul. Live consistently is the gospel. Make that your prayer. May that be our, our prayer as a body of believers gathered. He loved God. Speaking of Paul, and he longed to see people repent and follow Christ. Oh, that that would be true of us. How simple it is in many ways to love God and long to see people come to Him. So Paul desired to have a clean conscience before God and man, and he built his life on truth. Your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is built on absolute truth. What a foundation! You have the grandest foundation of all creation. All the philosophies of men that are out there, all of them to be had, you hold the truth. Your life is built on the absolute objective. Pray that the same would be true of you. Live consistent with that foundation which your life is built upon. Long to be that Christian man or woman. Live consistent with what you believe. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for Paul's defense here and the beauty of the Spirit of God uh, guiding him through such a uh, perilous time. Such, a, I imagine what the emotions might have been, but that you give him peace just as you give all your children peace in times of struggle, in times of doubt, in times of fear, in times of angst, in times of um, great opposition. You indwell us and you strengthen us and you see us through. As we spoke earlier today, you don't always spare us from physical harm, but you protect us spiritually. You don't always keep us from doubt, but you come to our aid in our greatest times of doubt. You don't always make us fearless, but you continually keep us safely wrapped in your arms where no one can pluck us out. You are a glorious God. You have given us truth. We have your eternal truth. We have the promised Messiah. Help us in light of such grace to live blamelessly before men 
and all the false accusations that might come our way because we are followers of Christ and nothing more. And when they come, give us strength to be blameless before them and to love our adversaries as much as you loved us when we, that we may look to Christ and that our hearts may long to see men and women around us come to Christ no matter how they may have treated us uh, prior. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.